You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick watch and discuss a drive-in double feature, randomly selected from action, horror, and exploitation movies with a list of over 2,000. This week, we have Thunderball, the fourth James Bond adventure, as well as Soylent Green, starring Charlton Heston. I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined here by... Jim, hello everybody, hello Patrick, how are you, buddy? I'm great, and this podcast is brought to you from the Grandma Sophia's Podcast Network. No, I'm, I'm good. Uh, Thunderball was uh, the first time I've seen it in quite a while. Me For whatever well. reason, it's w- one of the James Bond movies that I don't revisit too often, so it felt kind of fresh, kind of new. Because of the Connery movies, this is probably the one I've seen the least. And that's not to say it's the worst, as, as we've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, and over on our Patreon, where we have commentary tracks for the first couple of Bond movies, Diamonds Are Forever is atrocious. I, <laughs> I hate that movie, but I kind of love it in a way, too. So, I mean, yeah. this is definitely better than Diamonds Are Forever. It's, you know, it's not terrible. What I discovered was I've kind of shit all over this movie on more than one occasion when talking about okay. James Bond movies. Yeah, to like a lot of my other friends, I'm like, ah, oh, Thunderball's the worst. It's such a stupid piece of shit. There's so much underwater stuff going on. Yeah. I think when I was a kid, which is probably the last time I saw this movie, I really didn't like it because it felt really slow. But being an adult and watching it and all the underwater stuff, it's actually really cool. Like, it's all done really well. And I've got a whole new respect for this movie as a Bond movie. All right, well, we may have differing opinions on the underwater stuff because... Oh, my um, goodness. Well, here's the thing. I think it's impressive and it's horrifically boring to watch. Like, I admire them (laughs) for what they pulled off in 1965, but my God, it goes on forever. Yeah. So that's really my complaint. I mean, when when I think of Thunderball, oh, it's the movie with the underwater harpoon fight. You know, that's kind of the first Aquaman thing that jumps two. out. To, or Aquaman point <laughs> five. You know, yeah. it predates Aquaman. Aquaman negative one. You know, this movie has a lot going for it. Obviously, I'm I'm gonna say right off the bat, Connery looks like he's in better shape in this movie than he is in the first few. And yeah, what I mean yeah. by that, I, I like, you know, we see him shirtless plenty of times. So ladies, you know, <laughs> keep, keep an eye out. But also, or men, like, you know, or men, or men. But also the, the fight scenes, the action is handled better than it is in some of the earlier Bond movies. And what I mean by that, I know they do the sped up thing probably a little too often, but the action still feels more intense. And I'm going to say if they're using sean connery stuntman it's less obvious it feels like he's mm-hmm. doing more than he does certainly in dr no and i mean dr no has like 30 seconds of action in the entire movie obviously this movie has more than that connery feels more involved in the action and and i don't know if that's how how it's shot or if it is just a lack of stuntman and connery is actually doing more i was uh, comparing this movie in my head while i was watching it to uh, from russia with love and okay. how there was a lot of action in that movie, but it all felt kind it's of It's all like, in the second half. Yeah, but it also much. all felt like, I don't want to call it over the top, but when you think of like that gypsy camp fight scene, yeah, like that was a big action set piece. That's the only action in the first half of the movie, basically. But in this movie, you get like a lot of one-on-one with Connery and people, you know, okay. w- which is really neat. I, I understand what you mean with the gypsy fight scene, which you could say the equivalent to the gypsy fight scene in this movie, in Thunderball, is the harpoon fight yeah. in that it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like bond isn't even involved for the first half of that big fight scene 
basically. And in Bond, I don't want to say he's barely involved in the From Russia with Love, but there's just so many people around him. But then you you do get that awesome fight scene between Connery and Robert Shaw in From Russia with Love. So you yeah. do get that one-on-one in that movie. And that's I think that's just about one of the best fight scenes ever put on film. I love that scene. I don't think there's anything in Thunderball that's quite as good as that, but there is a lot of it. There is a lot of action in this movie. And there's a lot of impressive, I don't want to call them filmmaking techniques, but there's like a lot of impressive things that were pulled off for this movie. Like near the end, when you have people jumping out of like a World War II airplane in, <laughs> into the water, into the ocean. All that's awesome. You're like, holy shit, you know? Yeah, this movie feels huge. You know, yeah, it, it yeah. feels bigger than the previous Bond movies. And, of course, the the first three Bond movies were huge hits, so I'm sure, you know, United Artists, MGM, whoever. I don't think it was MGM. United Artists bought, or excuse me, MGM bought United Artists, I think, in, like, the early 80s. So this was United Artists, but the reason you see MGM in front of all the old Bond movies and stuff is just because when they get re-released, because at that point it's owned by MGM, I, I mm-hmm. think. But they were obviously willing to put a lot of money into this. Not that not that Goldfinger is a small movie, but I will say like Doctor No feels kind of small in retrospect, and yeah, you know, from yeah. Russia with Love is bigger than that. But I, th- I think we've got the first four James Bond movies. Each one's probably bigger than the last. And until Thunderball, it was probably true that each one was better than the last. Yeah, I I think Thunderball, though it was exciting, people probably liked slightly less than Goldfinger, just because there's so much underwater stuff that just kind of drags. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm willing to bet in 1965 that was like the most exciting stuff that had ever been on film. But just in 2022, my God, it drags. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, it's 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 impressive to see them pull off an action scene on that scale underwater. Yeah, and without the without the use of CGI. Yeah, you, you know? <laughs> mentioned Aquaman, and Aquaman has all of this underwater action, but it's all CGI. No one's actually underwater, you know. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Be- you want to get started on the plot of the movie? Yeah, then, yeah, uh... yeah. James Bond is in operation. And what an operator he is in Ian Fleming's Thunderball. So Thunderball, released in 65, directed by Terrence Young. We've seen him several times throughout this podcast. Well, we've never seen him. He's been behind the camera, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> yeah, star Sean Connery, obviously. And I gotta say, this movie begins, other than with the very awkward kind of swan pose shooting into the camera. First of all, that is Connery, isn't it? I, I think it is. I think this is the first time it's not a stuntman, unless maybe Goldfinger, I'd have to go back. But I know the first two are definitely stuntmen. That leads into a fantastic opening scene. I totally forgot about this. Bond and this French spy woman are at a funeral for another spy, I guess, that Bond was supposed to kill. Knowing that something is kind of weird, Bond heads to the uh, widow's mansion to console her, I guess, to give his condolences. This feels very Spectre with Monica Bellucci. It, exactly, bit, it know? does, yeah. I think the, the, the Spectre is probably taking some notes from this movie. Here, Bond doesn't fuck Monica Bellucci, but he fucks up this person under the veil because as this woman's walking towards him, he starts giving his condolences, then he just winds up and clocks this person right yes, in the face. Yes, this is this is the inspiration <laughs> for the famous Austin Powers scene in the in, in the beginning of that movie. That ain't no woman. It's a man, man. It turns out to be a man under the veil. 
the man that was supposed to have died so sean connery and this man just started I, I like how he figured it out too because he he saw the person the the widow getting into a car and he noticed that she opened the door and it's yes, like okay yeah. no no <laughs> woman of higher breeding would have opened the door they would have waited for a man it's like okay that's pretty clever luckily for him he was correct they just start tearing apart this this like lavish room in this mansion Everything is sped up, but it's still a fun action scene. Even though the the speeding up stuff, it 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 feels very dated, and it you know it doesn't look great. But the action is intense. The way things are just breaking and people are getting thrown into walls and stuff. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's 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 something. Yeah, and eventually Bond wrestles a poker, a hot poker, away from this bad person and chokes them to death. And as he's leaving the room, he picks up like a vase full of flowers and just throws the flowers on top of the body. <laughs> yeah. And then runs onto the roof, straps himself into a jetpack and flies out of this mansion <laughs> and uh, meets his accomplice on the road. Is this the least acting Connery has ever done as James Bond, where he just winds up hmm. and punches a widow in the face? You did an interview in which you said... It's not the worst thing to slap a woman now and then. As I remember, you said you don't do it with a clenched fist. It's better to do it with an open hand. Mm. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't love that. I haven't changed my opinion. You haven't? No. Well, I don't know if it's the least acting, but it's certainly some of my favorite. (laughs) Okay. So we got to talk about the jetpack. You know, we've been kind of seeing a rise in unbelievability of the gadgets right because dr yeah. no was there an, were there any gadgets i don't really remember. i think no i think he just had a, like an explosive watch or something didn't he was that it i don't remember that but uh, from russia with love he's got the briefcase that if opened the wrong way lets out a little like gas thing like okay that's fine yeah. that's believable that's something that could easily exist and maybe there's like one other thing from russia with love but it's not much Goldfinger Gold was like transponders and stuff like that. We get the ejector seat, I think, is the oh, big yeah, that's one. Right, so yeah. that's 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 where we establish <laughs> a lot of the stuff with the car. Then in this movie, in the opening scene of this movie, the cold open, we get a jetpack. Now <laughs> I have mixed feelings on this because I like when James Bond is schlock. I like when James Bond is serious. When it kind of rides the line between the two is when it's a little, you know, I, my brain doesn't know what to de- what how to, you know, what to do with the information that I'm seeing. Yeah. Cuz well, cuz this this movie isn't full on schlock, but we get things like the jetpack that are schlock and mm-hmm. you know, more fitting in Die Another Day, which is schlock from more or less start to finish. Actually not start to finish. That's kind of why Die Another Day is weird because you see that like James Bond getting tortured and stuff like after he gets captured by North Korea and it's like oh my god this is gonna be a really serious movie and then no nope, we've got an invisible car we've got Pinhead as a villain and Madonna you know, and Madonna as the sword instructor the yeah. sword instructor is a, the, the sword fight scene is a good is a good example because that's like a very like realistically handled action scene that relies on stunts and then most of that movie is just schlock with it, James Bond windsurfing and you know all that stuff <laughs> yeah you know a lot of people don't like the roger moore era because it was more schlock than connery i really don't think it was i think the connery movies were moving towards a direction of roger moore schlock and i think you could argue this is kind of the the first indication of that the thing is the schlock suits roger moore much better than it does he handles it better he you're right because i think there's just 
Roger Moore's just funnier. He's just his he just has a different style of acting than Connery does. Not that Connery's a bad actor, but he just doesn't do as well. Now, Roger Moore doesn't handle the serious stuff as well as Connery or as well as Craig or whoever, you know. Yeah. A friend of mine, I think it was my brother's roommate, the two of them were watching the James Bond movies they wanted to watch because a lot of them they hadn't seen and they wanted to watch them like from start to finish. And they're like, okay, you know, Dr. No, From Rush With Love, Goldfinger's awesome. And you watch Thunderball. The jetpack pops up in the first five minutes, and they're like, nope, we're checking out. (laughs) And they they kind of, they took a long break. They took a long break after after Thunderball. Maybe even they took a break. They might have even taken a break during the movie and not even finished that movie. Oh, man. Well, because it's not a bad movie, which is a shame. Like, it does, anyways. Well. We'll talk about it later, I'm sure. 007, danger sign for the world's most famous gentleman agent with a license to kill and a license to thrill. Well, after this jetpack escape, we get the Thunderball theme song sung by Tom Jones, perhaps the most, one of the most famous people ever to sing a theme song for James Bond. I there's there's a big list of you know paul mccartney adele tom jones tina turner yeah i I, he's top 15 probably (laughs) i don't even know if he's top 10 i mean paul mccartney's number one right i would say among younger people it'd probably be adele but i would put paul mccartney no but but he's paul mccartney come on he's a yeah well i agree i agree with you um and then but adele is probably top five Duran Duran was huge. I would I would put Tom J- Jones in like the Duran Duran camp. I mean, was he you know, big? We're, we're, was he big in the sixties? I don't even know. Duran Duran wasn't around in the sixties. No, yet. <laughs> Tom Jones is you jackass. <laughs> yeah, this is probably kind of right around when Tom Jones became big because he was he started with the British invasion, so he probably got to start kind of in sixty four, sixty five, somewhere around. Oh, there. okay. But I want to say I I like Tom Jones as a as a singer. I think he's. He's got an amazing voice, first of all, but also his style of music to me, it's so well suited for Bond. He's kind of, I've always thought of him as like the halfway point between like Frank Sinatra, like traditional pop and like Elvis, the Beatles, like modern pop, rock and roll. He kind of exists in both those realms, like equally where he can, you know, he could almost be a crooner. Like yeah, a Bobby yeah. Darren. He was pretty close to being a crooner, really. He was like the English or Welsh crooner. Yeah, but he also released very modern pop music, too. So, and, and I think a lot of the best James Bond songs kind of capture that old school classiness, but with some mm-hmm. modern stuff. And it's because there has to be like an old school kind of traditional pop sound to it, just because they always use the, you know, the instrumentation, the full orchestra and everything. That's why I've always thought, I know I've mentioned this before, but, you know, Lana Del Rey got to do a Bond song at some point because her music kind of... I know, that'd be great. Or her, her, like, old music, her newer music, less so, but her old music very much kind of captures this feeling quite well. But yeah, a good song. Good good song. It's, it's, usually, it's not one of the five or six I usually think of when I think of great James Bond songs, but it is a very good one. I don't know if we've ever spoken about this on the podcast or if we have in person. When I was younger, I didn't listen to music. Patrick, when you and I met, I was listening to Johnny Cash and playing the guitar. No, remember when we met, I was super into Johnny Cash and playing the guitar, and you were into Bob Dylan playing the harmonica. When I was younger, I just kind of like listened to any music that 
my parents were listening to. Yeah, I think that's probably most kids, yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. When the Lord of the Rings movies came out, I didn't understand that, like, there were other types of music, sort of. I bought the Lord of the Rings CDs, and I just listened to them all the time. I thought all all songs on the planet were, like, two and a half minutes long. Okay. And then, when I started watching, like, the James Bond movies a lot, I then started, like, listening to all the James Bond songs. And okay. that was, like, the only music I listened to for, like, six years was James Bond theme music and okay. Lord of the Rings music. And then okay. I discovered Johnny Cash and my life exploded. <laughs> and that oh. was probably around 2010. Spontaneous combustion. Okay. Anyways, that's it. That's my whole music story. Well, speaking of music, after the opening theme, we cut to Bond, who's back in England, recovering from his last mission. He meets a man pretty quickly named Count Lippy. I think that's his name, isn't it? He notices that the guy's got like a strange tattoo on his wrist, and he discovers that he's part of Spectre. Bond begins to pay close attention to Lippy. In in between periods of sexually harassing women at this oh, yeah. spa oh, and, that he's at. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, Lippy does try to kill Bond on like this spine-stretching machine. This is another, this is another scene that's kind of awful. Oh, like, it's terrible. Yeah, he just kind of gets strapped to this spine stretcher, and there's this beautiful spa worker woman who says, I'll be back in 15 minutes. And then the Count comes and, like, jacks the machine to max speed and stretch, yeah. I guess. And Bond just looks like he's humping this table. Yeah, and and there's no—and and then again, they do the sped-up um, film, and they, they cut to that angle of Bond's point of view, which is just— Zooming in and out really yeah, which quick, makes and, it's, and it's sped up. <laughs> I I didn't feel nauseous. I just felt like uh, watching this scene. You cannot convince me that this machine is capable of killing a person. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. First of all, the the machine looks like a sex toy of some sort, right? It does, but one hundred percent. But also, like there wouldn't be a fail safe. And then even what we actually see happening doesn't really feel like. It it would be killing him, right? Or like he's. I guess if you stretched, I don't. I don't even know how a, a spine stretching machine would work. I know when he um, when he get when he gets off of it, he says, "Wow, I must be six inches taller." So like the I guess the implication is that it's just like stretching him, but like I don't know. It it just feels like it's moving him back and forth. Well, speaking of six inches, he gets off the machine. No, uh, three three this... inches. Oh, 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 Sean Connery. <laughs> okay, I thought we were talking about me. <laughs> Well, he gets off the machine. This woman saves him, this spa woman. And she goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And he goes, that could have killed me, you know. And she goes, please don't tell my boss. I'll, yeah. I'll get fired. And he goes, oh, well, I know what you can do for me. And this is already after she's rejected him. So he just bangs her in a back room. And yep. he's like, oh, good. She's kept her job now. Full on Robert Kraft style post massage. <laughs> I will say yeah. when when they do the the shot of them like in the shower that's pretty cool that's that's pretty neat how they shoot that with the foggy glass right yeah yeah it, it's classy that we, we classy, get we get right? sex in the shower in both movies by the way today. we do yeah well shortly after i guess bond finds lippy and traps him in a steam booth and i assume he kills him <laughs> yeah right <laughs> we don't say anything happened but i assume he dies so. Yeah, and I love the the very very low tech way of he just blocks the thing with the with the, he just with a broom um, handle. Yeah, puts a broom handle in between the doors so they can't open. Yeah, so I guess he got steamed to death. And he gets Freddy Krueger. So meanwhile, there's a French pilot named Francois Derval 
who was killed by Spectre agents so that another fella, Angelo Palazzi, who has been given plastic surgery to look exactly like du- uh, Durval. Uh, again, kind of a die another day connection. How we, it is, how it we, is. yeah, we, you're right. We turn a North Korean man into a white man in that movie. <laughs> this, this one, believe it or not, more realistic. So Spectre has given this guy plastic surgery to look like Durval so he can steal an RAF Vulcan jet with two atomic bombs on board. Completely logical. The plan is that they're going to ransom these bombs to the British, to NATO and the British government for a hundred million pounds sterling. And if they don't get the money, they're going to blow up a couple American cities. Now, at this point in the movie, two things are happening simultaneously. So the plan to steal the jet and bombs is already going off without a hitch. Fake Durval has killed everybody on board the plane. He's successfully flown it down to the Bahamas and uh, the atomic bombs on board have been recovered by Spectre. Bond, he's getting wise to this plan or that something weird is going on because he's discovered the real Durval's body being dropped off at the health clinic by Spectre agents. So the next day, Bond and all the 00 agents in Europe are called in for this big important meeting with M and the Home Secretary regarding the stolen bombs. Oh, and I guess Blofeld's in the movie too. Yeah, this is again, Austin Powers really taking from all the Bond movies there. He has the scene where he just electrocutes the guy sitting yeah, in the seat, yeah. like one of his agents, because he apparently stole some money that they got from like a drug deal or something. And yeah. then <laughs> speaking of other movies, or going back to Austin Powers, this is, I assume, also the movie where they get the inspiration for number two in Austin Powers with the with the eye patch and everything. Oh, yeah, that's I forgot. I forgot he has an eye patch. I thought you were just going to say they cast Robert Wagner and Robert Wagner did, in fact, murder someone. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but 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 it's like there's a lot of murder in all the James Bond movies, really. So. <laughs> Robert Wagner, of course, murdered a sister of a Bond girl, allegedly. It's never been proven, but yeah, <laughs> Natalie Wood, his his wife, was oh. Alana Wood is in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, that's right. Holy shit. It's, it's Robert Wagner and it's Matthew Broderick, man. I've been obsessed with those guys <laughs> and just how they got away with it. I guess before we go anywhere else, Eyepatch Guy number two, his name is Emilio Largo, and he's in the movie a lot from here on out. It was also like his plan to steal the bombs. So after this big meeting with all the double O's, they've all been called to work in on this assignment, and Bond has some posting. I forget what it is. But he immediately goes up to M, and he's like, look, I want to go down to Nassau. I want to go down to the Bahamas and work there. And he goes, why? He's like, oh, because the real Durval is dead, and his sister's living down there. And I'm going to get close to his sister. Yeah, and of and, course Money Penny is like, oh, it's because the sister is gorgeous or whatever, because it's Claudia yeah, yeah, Nagy. Yeah. They have a picture of her in like a bikini for some reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I know. And so really, the only reason Bond goes down there is because he wants to hook up with this woman. Like that's the, but so that's gen- like pretty much the only reason. Well, I mean, they have no idea that the that the plane is in the Bahamas or anything. No, but he but he yeah. he he does have a legitimate lead. But it's also like you know if he can get his dick wet, he'll go ahead and do that. In Nassau as well, you know? <laughs> All over the world. This globe-trotting fucker. Yeah, it, you know, and fortunately this is Nassau, the Bahamas, not Long Island. <laughs> Worth noting. Thunderball stars Claudine Auger. Young, beautiful, trapped, could be dangerous. So down in the Bahamas, Bond has come on way too strong to Domino, who's Durval's sister and who is also the mistress of Amelia Largo. This was so confusing to me, her being the mistress, because 
at one point they say she's his niece i think that's what i that's what i heard but but she's also clearly the mistress and it's like okay so she seems aware that it's super weird for a smoking hot 25 year old to be with a one-eyed middle-aged man um and in in the one-eyed middle-aged man is also seemingly aware of it of how weird it looks which is why they say niece at one point but like you would almost think she was in on the plan or the in on at least in on him being like a weird criminal guy who's like loaded rich but i guess she just knows he's rich she doesn't know he's a criminal yeah which is well it's also confusing that her brother and her fake brother yes such an important role in that's that's the thing is it a pure coincidence that she is his mistress and also her brother was important for this or did did he start dating her and then is like you know get do some reconnaissance of his own and find out about the brother because that would make sense, but then again, you, you, you'd think, I don't know, you'd think she's in on it, but obviously your brother gets killed, so. Perhaps in the book, he got close to the sister to get a hold of the brother, I don't know. But if you're that rich and part of Spectre, then yeah. surely you wouldn't need to get close to a Yeah, it's just a little, you know. Brother. Anyways. But I like the, uh, we get a great sibling relationship here even though we never see the two interact but she loves her brother <laughs> she's she's talking him up all the time i just think that's kind of neat that's that's kind of nice yeah she's like oh he's so fantastic he's a pilot oh he's amazing and well not just that, he, that not just dead. that he's a he's pilot dead. but that he's like devoted to like service right it's you know because yeah and i think she finds out he's dead in like the last half hour of the movie. yeah so uh you, men- you mentioned minutes. the book in the book She's not Domino Durval. I think she's Italian, maybe, or something. And they changed the name because of the actress who they cast. They're like, okay, we got to make her French. Even though I don't know why they did, because the Bond movies have had no problem dubbing Bond girls in the past. Yeah. But that having been said, I'm assuming Claudine Auger is not dubbed in this movie. But I was, I don't know, I wasn't even 100% sure she's French, because the only other movie I've seen her in, or the only other movies, I think I've seen her in more than one italian giallo movies she's the star of a bay of blood which is one of my favorite italian horror films of all time it's by director mario bava fantastic movie so okay she's french i you know i did i wouldn't have known because no one knows who what the hell ethnicity anyone in those italian movies are because <laughs> they're all dubbed you know well there's also a fair amount of dubbing in this movie i don't know if you caught it like especially at the carnival scene or the Largo is a hundred percent dubbed. You can you can tell. Yeah, then like which so was so was yeah. Goldfinger. I don't think we talked about that in in Goldfinger, but Goldfinger is dubbed as well because he was like a German dubbed. actor. Odd job is job dubbed. Okay. Yeah, like, How is he dubbed? He doesn't say anything. <laughs> he says he says things like ha ha. Oh, that counts. <laughs> it's not. It's definitely not him, though. I can guarantee it. <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> well, cause, like, if you watch, like, his mouth doesn't move when he puts his hand up. Okay. <laughs> so, like, they just dub him. Yeah, so Bond meets Domino, and after trying to ask her out on, like, several dates all at once, she ultimately rejects him, and he heads back to his hotel room to just try to figure out what he's going to do next. And one of the coolest secret agent things... In this movie, or probably the coolest secret agent thing in this movie, and one of the coolest secret agent things from the Sean Connery movies happens here. So he goes back to his hotel room, and he realizes that someone's been in it. He listens to, like, this secret tape recorder that was hidden in a book, 
and he hears that someone entered his room, and he's kind of like deduced by the sound of the footsteps that the person is hiding in the bathroom. And I love the entrance of Felix in this movie, because somebody knocks on the door and it's Felix Leiter, the CIA agent, and Bond opens the door and immediately punches him right in the gut to get him to shut up, and he says, ah, there's somebody hiding in my, uh, in my room. So Bond makes his way into the bathroom, where the guy's clearly in the shower, and Bond turns the water on super hot, the guy jumps out, and then he <laughs> smacks the door against his head and, like, knocks him out. <laughs> is this super hot? I mean, he just turns, I assume it's just super cold, because when showers are starting oh, out. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, it's great. And then he just kind of drags the guy out, and he's like, look, look go back to your boss. <laughs> like, tell, tell him to leave me alone. Oh, yeah, this, this, gun back and this is good. He says, like, he doesn't, he always releases the small fish that he catches or something like that. So he's putting this guy down. Yeah. Go back to your friends and report. Tell them the little fish I throw back into the sea. When, when Largo deals with him, he just kills the guy because because he let Bond get the best of him. But he doesn't just kill him. How does he kill him, Jim? Because this is classic Bond. Well, he throws him into a pool full of sharks. Right. <laughs> classic stuff. That's... They yeah, do not really, have laser it's, beams it's... on their heads. But yeah, it is great. Like, it's kind of dopey and goofy. And, like, you can tell that these sharks are terrified. <laughs> like, in the scene, the guy jumps on, the guy's pushed on top of one of the sharks, and it, like, takes off in this pool that it's sitting in. <laughs> through film they they turn the the water red i guess you know like it's not it's not even like they put dye in the water or anything they've just like turned the film red well this isn't the first time we've seen animal related attempted killings in james bond because of course we have the famous tarantula from dr no <laughs> but yeah animals exotic animals used to kill people this this is a thing right it, it's the yeah. the sharks and license to kill bites off a guy's yep. leg we get the Komodo dragon in Skyfall eats a person, yeah. which is amazing. And that felt like such a throwback to old school Bond because I, I think for the most part, the modern Bond movies don't do that stuff because it's a little goofy. There's some other ones, right? What's your favorite animal? What, what, what to you is the most intimidating for like a bad guy to use an animal? I understand that the Komodo dragon is not used by a bad guy. He just happens to be hanging out at the casino and he kills a guy like, but now are, are you asking me if i had to pick like any animal oh the alligators alligators crocodiles and live and let die yeah, i wanted I was to mention say, that yeah because that's one of my favorite scenes ever i was gonna pick them like if you were thrown into like a like a like a pool or a pit full of alligator stroke crocodiles i mean that's terrifying well and it's it's the sheer number of them too it's dozens upon dozens of them here it's like it's like five sharks you know, yeah, and they're all, nothing and they're, to sneeze well, they at. They all seem to be very disinterested. Yeah, well, you know, they're, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's the alligators crocodiles is, is, is my favorite as well. Although I do like Komodo dragon might be my favorite animal in the entire animal kingdom. So I do love me a good, a good Komodo dragon. But yeah, that live and let die scene is just special. It's like my favorite stunt in any movie too. So Bond spontaneously, well, I guess not spontaneously, but Q shows up anyways. And surprises Bond. He gets a bunch of gadgets from Q. None of them are, like, super cool gadgets, like, from Goldfinger. They're just, like, a watch that's also a Geiger counter, and... No, oh, well, he gets the, the breathing, some kind of breathing apparatus, too, for, for when he's underwater. Q's helping him with all this stuff because Bond is going to try to sneak onto Largo's ship, the Disco Volante, which is a great name for a ship. I don't know what it means. Yeah, it's what before it disco is, was a music genre, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Dis disco, the yeah. clubs might have been called discos at this time, but yeah, it definitely wasn't, didn't have the connotation that it would have 12 years later or whatever, you know. Yeah, so Bond tries to sneak onto the ship 
but he's spotted by a harpoon guard and uh, he's also caught on security cameras and he's scared away by hand grenades by everybody on on board like throwing hand grenades over the side but while he's down there he does discover that there's an underwater hatch on the bottom of this ship so bond realizes that the plane that they're looking for was probably scuttled underwater so Bond's next big move is to poke around Largo's house, which there's a fantastic scene. He goes there during the day. He's hanging out with Largo and everybody else. Largo brings him like skeet shooting on like the edge of his property. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Largo shoots a, a, a pigeon out of the air, whatever it's called. A skeet. Bond isn't, goes, that, isn't that what oh, they're called? I, I, I don't know. Bond goes, oh, can I try it? it surely can't be that hard or yeah he downplays how good he is with the guns and then he basically yeah. <laughs> does like a no look shot or something yeah i know yeah awesome. he's only like half looking and he blows yeah. it up in the background he goes oh it isn't hard at all yeah <laughs> and so this is and then we get some more interactions with domino obviously where like bond is just like eyeing her up when she's like in a bikini and she's like yeah, i think i'd better change or something you know yeah i know it's really kind of creepy and i feel bad for her no it's it's classic bond <laughs> Which, which oftentimes is very creepy, that's fair, but I think it's fine yeah. here. He first meets Largo at a casino, and yeah, he basically just cleans him out, right? He just beats the shit out of him at this, uh, is it Bunko? I have no clue what game that was. Domino says something like, oh, I, I want a drink, but Largo at this point is out all of his money, so he can't even buy her a drink, and then he's like, oh, mind if I <laughs> buy the lady a drink? And then they go dancing for a bit, and... He's he's asking her about his boss, and, and she, she doesn't appear to have any idea what Largo does or whatever. Or I guess yeah, boss. She just hangs out not by not a boss, day, boyfriend. Uncle. Uncle, yeah. <laughs> but then after he leaves, Largo demands that she tell him literally everything Bond says. So, so Largo is very suspicious of Bond from the second they meet, and obviously Bond thinks Largo's up to something. And also Largo... I assume knows who Bond is right off the bat because he's James Bond and Largo's part of Spectre. Yeah. Right? He's like second in command of Spectre. Which always kind of bothered me is about like, you can't have like a super spy who's also super well known. Like that, that's just kind of like, eh, what, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, after the skeet shooting during the day, Bond has to infiltrate Largo's compound at night because another agent named Paula was captured by Largo, right? I think that's what happened. No, she, well, she gets captured by, the, well, someone working for Largo, but it's the other hot woman captures her because she oh, that's gets right, into yeah. that room and and because I, when when does Bond beat her? I don't remember the hot woman with the accent. That's bad. Yeah, Is that your, evil she, evil uh, woman. after this after this a, a little while after she gets shot. No, I know she gets... Well, they meet, though, because she's showing oh. up there for, like, a date, you know, quote-unquote. And then she sees the other woman there, and she's like, oh, James Bond must think highly of himself to invite both of us there. But then she just ends up using chloroform or whatever, right? Yeah, I forget. So they I, meet well, at some... He, she meets Bond at some point earlier. I don't remember the context. But the CIA agent, Paula, she's she's captured. But by the time Bond gets into the house, she's already committed suicide. She bit down on like a cyanide capsule. So now Bond just has to get out of there. So he does evade Largo's goons and stuff by jumping on roofs. And he also evades Largo's sharks, which is a great that little scene. That fun, yeah. He falls into a pool with this goon and Largo puts like a like an automated like pool cover. <laughs> yeah, they could easily <laughs> the shoot him. The they could easily shoot him, but Largo would rather feed his sharks, basically. 
Then they open like a like a tunnel stroke hatch leading from the shark pool to the swimming pool. But Bond stabs the goon and like I guess the sharks are attracted to his blood. Mm-hmm. So Bond's able to just swim past them. Yeah, and using pretty... the making use of the breathing apparatus that he's been gifted. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I remember when he met that woman, by the way, going back. It's when he had to escape from the ship and she gave him a ride back to the hotel. That's right, yeah. Yeah. There's so many nice cars and stuff in this movie. How much money do you think it costs to like to ship these cars to like a random tropical island? You know what I mean? And film there for but a you month don't, or whatever. You don't think they have cars on tropical islands? No, no, no. I think they do. But like you had like a brand new Mustang. You had a bunch of really like Listen, nice there's, cars. Listen, the, there's British money in the Bahamas. You can get that in the Bahamas even, even in 1965. Okay. They, okay. They, I don't I'll think they it. shipped a damn thing there except for... Connery's fat ass. <laughs> Just How kidding. Dare you? He's I already, in great said, shape he's, in I already said this is the best shape he's been in uh, so far. Yeah, not diamonds are forever. That's for sure. You can call him a fat ass in that. Oh one. yeah, he's he's looking like middle aged and just kind of miserable in that movie. Yeah, poor guy. Double O seven guarantee sign of prompt delivery, night and day service. So yeah, so Bond does escape the whole compound, but he gets taken in by this woman, Fiona Volpe, who's this beautiful, attractive woman. I forget exactly how she captures him, but I think it's like she, they're just sitting in her room. No, he goes back to his room. She sees that she's bathing. Then they have... Oh, that's Then right. they have sex. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, for 1965 is... There's a lot of sex. Incredibly in risque. In the morning, then the other goons come to the door, and then then they all capture him, even though he had a gun the entire time and could have just killed her, but nope, he needed to have sex. Yeah. Well, then they start driving him, I guess, back to Largo's place, and they're stopped by this big parade going on, (laughs) and Bond escapes their custody by kicking a bottle of, like, booze. Oh, that's awesome. In this vintage Ford Thunderbird, and then lighting it on fire. (laughs) Yeah. Which is really cool, and uh, yeah, he kind of he get, he gets shot in like the the ankle, so, yeah, the so ankle, they're tra- yeah. tracing him by the blood, but then he hides in the parade float and everything. Yeah, and then he makes his way to a club where he kind of cleans up, but they surround him at this club, and Lady Fiona she starts dancing with him on the dance floor, surrounded by people, and all these bad guys are about to take Bond out. And kind of at the last second, as they've got their guns trained on him, he turns and one of the goons shoots the woman in the back, killing her. Bond kind of like shuffles her body over to it, <laughs> over to a table and sits her in a chair and says something like, do you mind if my friend sits this one out? She's just dead. Yeah, <laughs> which I love the bluntness of that. Like usually you would say, I understand like just dead, like, oh, the, she's tired. But like yeah. usually you would say dead tired, but no, she's just dead. <laughs> like it's like he gave up yeah. on, <laughs> on saying yeah, something. Yeah, he's like, I've had bit. enough for tonight. I'm going yeah, home. <laughs> he, he gave up on saying something a little bit more clever and is just like, yeah, yeah. whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, even even if he had just added "tired" at the end of that sentence, well, yeah, because then it's like, oh, it's the famous Arnold Schwarzenegger line in Commando. Thank you, and do me a favor, don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. So by this point, Bond and Felix are running out of time to find the missing jet and the bombs. But by a pure stroke of luck, they stumble upon the jet and all the dead airmen inside, including Fake Duval. No, the real Duval. No, Fake Duval was the. Oh, did they the, they was, killed was him? Pilot. Yeah, remember they killed him after he okay. like landed the plane because and because he wanted more money. Yeah, there's also this scene. They I'm almost 100 percent positive they killed a real shark. 
<laughs> they're like hanging out in this helicopter and Bond is like, hey, shoot one of the sharks. That'll attract them. Yeah. And I think they shot and killed an actual shark. It's possible. And then also right after this, Bond meets up with Domino and they do like this underwater sex scene, which is shot really, really well. Oh, yeah. Classy. It's, it's it's neat. They both swim towards each other wearing like their scuba gear. They embrace and they sink down to the seafloor behind like a rock and some coral. And then, <laughs> and then see, the like, a bunch of oxygen bubbles yeah. come up <laughs> and float to the surface, which is really great. So now that the plane has been found, Bond needs to find the bombs. And he manages to sneak aboard the Disco Volante as part of like Spectre's bomb recovery crew. He also he also gets Domino on his side by telling her about her dead brother because yeah, yeah. she is she loves her brother. He also has the awesome harpoon kill. Yes. That's amazing. Friday the 13th Part 3 has nothing on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. And he does it so, like, smooth, too. You know, he just I know, that's that's why it's awesome, yeah. Him. Vargas behind you. Really? He must have followed us. <gasps> I think he got the point. Yeah, so Bond kind of secretly joins this bomb recovery crew, and he sneaks aboard, and he's led directly to the stash of atomic bombs, which they remove from, I don't know how to describe this, they remove from under an island. Yeah, it's like an underwater <laughs> then, cave, basically. And then Bond was fighting with a guy, and he accidentally gets trapped in this underwater cave, but he does make his way out. So Largo and everybody, they're headed towards Miami, because that's where they're going to set off one of the bombs or both of the bombs or whatever. Bond is essentially marooned on an island until Felix just flies over and rescues him. Now, this is the big, exciting action scene from this movie, from 1965. It's the big action scene. It's exciting, I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's, that's that's worth debating. Well, yeah, I, I, I do agree. I really do. But in, 19, so cut- in 1965, obviously putting it in context... This is unbelievable because how much like underwater footage is there? Well, first of all, we've already had a, a bunch of underwater footage. Bond fought a dude. They swam out. They scuba their way out to the bombs and everything. But this scene where it's just, I guess, Navy SEALs, they never say who these guys are. Yeah. The the, the people that, that uh, jump down from planes and stuff and they're attacking the... Um, Largo's man. Yeah, Largo's militia or whatever. And thankfully, they have clashing, you know, scuba uniforms so you can tell who's who. That's, you know, it's appreciated. (laughs) Everyone's coordinated. Um, But yeah, we just get harpoon uh, harpoon shooting. And then then the Largo's men have these like underwater jet ski kind of things, which also shoot harpoons. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And like, and again, this whole scene starts off with... Largo's men underwater, and then you have, like, this big, like, DC-3 or something like that, I don't know, fly, like, low over the ocean, and then, like, 15 people jump out <laughs> with parachutes. Well, I think it's more and than then, 15, but yeah. yeah. It was a hell of a lot of people, and they all come down into the ocean start fighting underwater off the coast of Miami. And we should note that the, the first portion of this action, the first, because it's, this whole action scene goes on forever. It's, it almost has a three-act structure in and of itself, because Bond isn't even here yet. So the first act yeah. is no Bond, and it, I can't describe how incredibly awkward it is to have all of this without music, because the first act of this action scene, no music. 
Yeah, it's it's all just sounds of bubbles and harpoons. It's it's just weird. When Bond joins the fray, then we get the classic action music, the classic Sean Connery action music that we heard at the the fight at the gypsy camp, which I don't think was in Goldfinger at all, but it's it's in this movie. It's probably in You Only Live Twice also. This music is reminiscent of like original series Star Trek fight music. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kirk versus yeah. Spock with the Q-tips. Yeah. Now imagine people cutting oxygen lines and stuff underwater to that. You know, it's it's essentially the same thing. Well, that's there's no real oxygen line cutting until Bond enters because that's kind of his thing is he goes around with a knife <laughs> and drowns people <laughs> and drowns people he rips off masks he takes <laughs> he his knife people. and yeah he stabs some people he takes his knife and cuts off the oxygen he also drops like a grenade onto into a room with three yeah people in it that's and awesome them up. <laughs> that is really cool although that was a little weird too because in that scene when um when he's being chased by like i don't know five six men he takes him into like some underwater wreckage and he leaves his oxygen tank or whatever. So they follow that because they see the bubbles. They think that's where he is. Meanwhile, he's just using his Q equipped breathing thing. So they follow that. And then they're like, Oh, this is weird. What's this? And then he just drops a grenade. And the entire, (laughs) the entire time that we're doing this, you, you almost get the impression that James Bond's the only good guy left because we haven't cut back to anyone else. But then yeah. when the, when those guys are disposed of, J- J- Bond goes back to the fight, and there's like a bunch of good guys left still. There's there's like yeah. dozens of them because they end up winning. You know, they end up overpowering Largo's men. There's something about watching people being hit with a bunch of harpoons that is both terrifying and and kind of brutal, incredibly I mean, violent. Just just the the long. I mean, it's more violent visually. To watch like an arrow or a harpoon hit someone than it is to see someone get shot with a gun. Yeah. Because just you have that thing sticking out of them and, and it's just visually it's just a little bit more disturbing I guess. But it's yeah I don't know. And also at one point in this fight they also harpoon a shark and then it just swims away. Yeah. The good guys do prevail. They kind of like you see it very briefly as the camera's panning and like following Bond and Largo. You see all the good guys kind of like corral what's left of the bad guys and like start forcing them to the surface. Yeah, because a lot of them surrender. Now Largo and a couple goons are escaping and Bond is chasing them back to Largo's ship. Which I get like at this point Bond is the only one that can stop Largo and recover the bombs. As they come up to the water, like it's is it the US Coast Guard, or, like the Navy or something? They show up in like these big like battleships with cannons on them. <laughs> Coast Guard doesn't have battleships, so I'm gonna say this yeah. is the Navy. <laughs> Yeah, that's what well, I was saying. Also, yeah. you you keep saying it's just off the coast of Miami, and I'm not a hundred percent sure it they are that close to Miami because when you see the people diving when they when they jump out of the plane, they're close to a coast of some sort. But then we also see how freaking fast this disco volante goes when they put it into hyper gear or whatever. You know, when they when they yeah. get rid of half the ship because there's like a ship inside a ship, and the ship yeah. inside the <laughs> ship goes super fast. And it's like, yeah, and it, then the ship, but they never the arrive. Of, they never make landfall. It's like, yeah, I thought no, they were like I, close to Miami. I don't think the bombs are in that part of the ship anymore. I think they left them. Well, either way, the, the atomic bombs kind of disappear because when the Navy shows up and starts blowing the shit out of the bad guys, the back end of the Disco Volante catches fire and they kind of like jettison it. So the bombs aren't on that end because then that whole end just explodes when the Navy hits it. 
and Bond and Largo and a couple other guys and Domino, they're on the front part of the ship, which, which turns into a hydrofoil, which is really awesome. Oh, we forgot to mention, starts... Domino is in captivity because Bond, when he made an alliance with Domino, gave her his Geiger counter watch or whatever and oh, that's said, right, yeah. I need you to find out where the bombs are being held or, or like what, not where they're being held because he knows they're not on the, the, the ship. But he's like, I need you to f- find out when they get loaded onto the ship. So she's walking yeah. around with the Geiger counter. And then Largo finds her, sees what she's doing. So he ties her up and is like about to torture her. Yeah, with ice and a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, and then and then he gets stopped because stuff's going on. Meanwhile, there's also that one other guy who ends up being like a hero who's just like... Yeah, who then you never see again afterwards. He ends up freeing Domino, and he he has like a line or two, or he's, he's just like I guess he he thought Largo was going too far or something. He he was on board up until this point, but now like okay, yeah. bombing Miami, I don't really feel great about this, you know. And it's like okay, so he's he's, he's a he has a change of heart, I guess, and he enough to save Domino. While Domino's being untied, Bond is having a fist fight with uh, what's his name again. <laughs> Largo? Largo, yeah. He's having a fist fight with Largo on the bridge, and it's it's a goofy-looking fight, and it's not because the fighting itself is silly, but there's, like, that rear screen projection thing yeah. that yeah. we're being shown, and you're on this hydrofoil with, like, sped-up footage, and you look like you're about to crash into islands, and the two of them are kind of... They're, like, reaching for, for the steering the wheel, wheel and, and just yeah. narrowly... Like, with how fast, based on the... the, the um, the screen with how fast they're going they would not be able to react to avoid any of these things it's no, just it feels all. very fake and it, it reminds me a little bit of kind of how fake everything is at the end of goldfinger when they're on the plane <laughs> a little <laughs> bit like that where it's just like oh, i wish we had something a little bit better than this for the climax yeah goldfinger it's it's, it's that's kind of like a post climax we kind of already had our it's that's the dessert we already had our our dinner here this yeah. kind of is the dinner so that's unfortunate unless, yeah, unless it, you want to say the underwater fight is the dinner in which case you kind of had a shitty dinner and, and now we're just <laughs> having a dessert you had, that you, you know a shitty wet dinner you know yeah your dinner that's just you know boiled in water with no spice because it was made by an irishman who thinks water is a spice or something and then <laughs> and then here's your dessert and it's like okay the brownie is a little bit overdone you know it's a little burnt yeah it, it is kind of unfortunate I guess the cool part at the end is like Domino comes up the stairs and harpoons. I do like Margo in the I back. do like that Domino saves the day because Domino, it's personal for her once she yeah. finds out about the brother. Obviously, yeah. Not only did Largo have her brother killed, he even killed the guy who looked like her brother. So even if she <laughs> wanted to meet up back up with her brother again, you know, this other person and develop some kind of sibling relationship with this guy who's been surgically altered to look like her brother she never had that opportunity <laughs> shut up <laughs> well yeah he he gets his just desserts his overcooked brownie and uh, he's killed but his he wedges his body against the steering wheel 
and uh, they can't turn the hydrofoil before they hit an island. So Bond, Domino, and man who helped Domino all jump off the ship. The guy who doesn't, he, he says he, this is, that's his second line of the movie, He's or third maybe. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I've never, never learned how to swim. And Bond's like, well, it's as good a time as any to, to try or something to learn. I know, yeah. And they all jump off the ship. So I'm assuming that guy drowns. <laughs> I, I assume so because you don't see him at the end of the movie. But yeah, so the ship runs aground and just explodes in this ball of fire. So presumably the Goodness atomic bombs gracious. are on there either. Then right after, a plane flies over and drops a raft, and Bond and Domino swim over to the raft and get in it. Bond is like doing like this weird thing where he's like hooking himself up to something, and he releases a big like helium balloon. This is the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, exactly. And then the plane flies back over and catches the metal wire that's attached to the balloon and like lifts Bond and Domino into the air and they go rocketing through notice the air he's strapped in she isn't so she is literally holding on for dear <laughs> life even though when we when we see the close-up of them you know no one seems that concerned because it's you know it's the cheesy rear screen projection thing but like i love that then <laughs> like he couldn't have hooked, hooked her in better like <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah then that's the end then it just the, the movie just kind of abruptly ends right there so uh patrick how did you like Thunderball after watching it for the first time in many years? Thunderball is good. It's not great. The last two Bond movies from Rush with Love, Goldfinger, are both great. This one, it has its problems. I think on a filmmaking level, it's possibly the most impressive Bond movie up up to that point. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. all the underwater stuff, how difficult that must have been to pull off. I do think Connery's performance is good. Also... This is the kind of the smoothest Connery's been. He seems like, you know, I every now and then you see something on, you know, film Twitter or whatever. I know you don't. You're not on Twitter. But they do, <laughs> like, they'll just talk about how, like, modern actors, modern movies, they can show sex and stuff. They can show nudity that you couldn't do in a James Bond movie in the 60s, obviously. But that just the performances, the acting isn't as sexual you know and i'm not saying that i've never like felt that or agreed with that but i will say that the connery performance here he just oozes sexuality in in this movie more so than the other ones i think he oozes he also oozes like class like he's just so smooth about everything well that's part of it that's i think those are related what sharp little eyes you've got wait till you get to my teeth this guy's just so fucking cool. <laughs> every time he's on screen. Oh, absolutely. Well, almost every time. <laughs> but when he's punching widows, probably the coolest he's ever been. That was awesome. Yeah, that's... I agree. <laughs> I I think there's there's a there's a goofiness to that that's awesome, but then it's also like clever how we figured everything out. Yeah, well the way he like wound up with that too. Yeah. It was just fantastic. But <laughs> as for the movie, just what I like because I do like about the movie. So what I really like about the movie a crazy villain who feeds people to sharks always always appealing um any kind of goofy animal thing in a james bond movie of course we already talked about that i think domino is an excellent bond girl probably an underrated one just because i don't Mm -hmm. people don't seem to talk about her the way they talk about certainly honey rider or pussy galore pussy galore it helps that she's got the name because that you just can't forget that name yeah (laughs) or domino derval it's it's not it's not a goofy sexual pun name but i i think she's awesome she's in a bikini for like 90 percent of the movie like whenever you see her which is great but also like her character is good 
I like that she gets the moment at the end of the movie where she gets to kill Largo and which saves Bond too. So she she's like she's the hero of her own story. She's the hero of James Bond's story as well. That's just kind of neat. I I do think a lot of the action is good. I think even the underwater stuff it's good. It's impressive. It just goes on for way too long. There's like 20 minutes yeah. of it. Like yeah. if it, if it were 5 minutes that would be awesome. There's just too much of it. But overall, I think it is a good movie. Jim, what about you? I remember liking this movie a lot less. Okay. Mainly because of the underwater stuff. On a rewatch, the only part that really dragged for me was when they steal the plane and sink it. No, then come it's like, I mean that's that's like exposit. That's that doesn't drag. That's the that's the movie. That's the plot. They need yeah, that but they're happen. like yeah, but they're like fifteen minutes underwater, pulling a cover over the plane and like taking the bombs out, and it's like okay. See, okay, I, I guess I don't I don't remember that being distractingly long or whatever, but whatever. Kind of aping off what you were saying, Sean Connery's uh, acting in this movie was great. He looked, you know, and again, like just him oozing that charisma and charm throughout the movie really kind of sold you on this sexy super spy. Connery's part of it, but speaking of the women as well, is this the sexiest of the first four Bond movies? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, 100%. We got the woman in the bath. We got we got, who he ends up having sex with in in the bed, which which is a really risque scene for 65. You got James Bond fucks a woman underwater, and you know it's tastefully shot and everything. Um, you get you get basically three Bond woman girls, in right? The sauna. The the sauna. Well, you know you get four Bond girls because you get the masseuse, you got the CIA agent who we didn't spend much time talking about. Mm-hmm. Mar- Martine Beswick, I believe, is the actress's name. I think it's Molly Peters is the actress who's the masseuse. I don't remember the actress who plays Fiona, but you've got her. Oh, I think She's it's gorgeous. Luciana, Luciana Paluzzi or Paluzzi or something. Luciana Paluzzi, lovely to look at, murderous to know. And then obviously Claudine Auger. So you got you got four Bond girls for the price of one. <laughs> and they're, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I also liked how the women in this movie weren't just objects compared to pretty much every other James Bond movie except for Goldfinger. D- Domino, and then I guess Fiona, because Fiona's the evil, evil woman. And yeah, everything, but... yeah, and she's like racing this Mustang around. Well, let's let's you... be honest, the masseuse is kind of just an object. Yeah, one hundred percent. We or can't like, really get around like, that. When he's like rubbing her with like that mink glove. <laughs> oh, that's right. We, we didn't we super didn't talk weird. about the mink glove. Yeah, <laughs> super weird. Yeah, Fiona. She's. It, it, I really liked how she was portrayed as like this. She's a lot evil, of fun, but very, she's a lot of fun. Like to watch. this extremely capable woman <laughs> you know yeah. like when she's shooting the skeets i guess the clay pigeons yeah she she's she's awesome she's a great secondary villain and then even like the underwater fight scene i agree with you it went on too long but everything that was going on in the scene itself was fun to look at it was it was exciting like a harpoon battle is cool yeah <laughs> I, I guess i guess i just wish we didn't have two thirds of it i wish we had a third of what we actually got you know <laughs> it just goes on for too yeah. long and then also the the as I mentioned the first section of that being without music is just kind of weird too. It's just it's not as exciting yeah, exactly. as it should be. And again, but in 1965, that's probably the most exciting thing anyone has ever seen. I, I admit that, but it's 2022 now, both currently when we record this, as well as when the second movie takes place, which is kind of neat. But it's just yeah, we've seen just 
more interesting, more entertaining stuff in Bond movies and in other movies. You know, it's just, it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. But all in all, I still really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot more than I used to, and I feel bad for shitting on it. I forgot I forgot to mention another reason why you don't feel like you see the Connery stuntman as often is because half the movie Connery's in a freaking scuba suit that may or may not be <laughs> Sean Connery. I don't know. That's a big that's part true. of it. Yeah, that's 100% true. New York City, 50 years from today. Nothing runs, nothing works. They gave me a quarter of a kilo. But people are the same. And people will do anything to get what they need. What they need most is Soylent Green. All right, so Soylent Green, based on a novel by esteemed science fiction author harry harrison the novel is called make room make room with harry and the hendersons yes exactly that's exactly <laughs> what i said the film stars film legend charlton heston as well as film legend edward g robinson in what i assume is his last role he died the same movie the same year the movie came out in 1973 you know if it's not his last movie it's certainly among his last movies i'm not even sure if he was alive when it was actually released mm-hmm he plays the great role of kindly old Jewish man. Um, very, <laughs> I very much enjoy him in this. It also stars a gorgeous woman who I've never seen in anything else. Lee Taylor Young, I think is her name. And it stars TV legend Chuck Connors, who's best known as the Rifleman. And also, if you're a fan of B-movies, horror movies, you will recognize him from Tourist Trap. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not a great movie, but, like, you know, it's it's worth watching if, if you're into some weird independent horror movies. But And also, the man who gets murdered in the beginning of the movie. We've seen him before. He is Joseph Cotton, who is um, Orson Welles' best friend in Citizen Kane, and he is the main doctor in The Abominable Doctor Vibes. So he's the guy with the oh. with the sixty year old son in that movie or whatever. You know, the, remember the guy that's supposed to be like a teenager did, and he yeah. looks like forty or something. Yeah, so he's that yeah. guy. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So yeah, Soylent Green. It, it takes place in twenty twenty two in New York City when New York City has a population of forty million. We establish <laughs> that they're dealing with not only overpopulation but also a heat wave or like you know climate change. I guess the collapse of the ozone layer or something, you know. Uh, there's a lot of stuff they don't really, you know, a lot of movies like this would, like, establish a lot of this through narration. Here, a lot of it we just kind of learn visually, which is really appreciated, because when you see Charlton Heston, like, leaving his apartment, there's just bums everywhere on the stairs and everything. Like, that's really neat. And then also you see people, you know, when when it's Soylent Green Day, which is Tuesday... <laughs> is um you see like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extras just filling the streets and a lot of them were like wearing masks and stuff and it's like okay so you know pollution's out of hand the ozone layer's out of hand there's not enough food there's not enough which food, is why food there's shortage like fake food soy foods a soylent isn't soy food that's i don't think because soylent is a real thing Right? Is it? Yeah, no, know. it is. I, I mean, it's it. Soylent Green isn't a real thing, but Soylent is like, I think a lot of people, it's like a powder, I think, usually. And it's, I think some people have Soylent as like a pre workout or maybe a post workout thing. Like, it, it's a real oh, thing, and I don't think it's, I, uh, 
the, it's, the, uh, the first syllable is throwing you off. I don't think it's actually soy related. I could be wrong. So, well, I, I just looked up Soylent, and it says Soylent drinks contain soy protein isolate. Okay. All right. And so like, I was wrong. Oils and stuff. So first of all, okay, so we have the Soylent company. This is a very powerful company. They've made they make a bunch of different Soylent things. Soylent Green is their most popular, and it's so popular that they can only sell it or, or not even sell it. I'm not I'm not even sure if they sell it. I guess they're a big company. They must sell it, but like you just see people gathering in the streets to get it. But the Soylent Green is on Tuesday. They also make like Soylent Red, maybe Soylent Blue or whatever. Soylent Green is made from sea plankton. And we learned this just on the news, on the television. So we've got Robert Thorne. He's an NYPD detective. He's played by Charlton Heston. He doesn't dress like a detective. He just dresses weird. He's got like a little bandana around him, around his neck a lot of times. (laughs) And he lives with an old Jewish man named Saul. And this is, of course, Edward G. Robinson. So in this future, we have... Rich people, not only are they, like, the only people that can get meat, but they basically, they all have, like, mistresses in their house, right? And what, I think they use the word concubine or something, but... Yeah, I think so. Cheryl, not Cheryl, Cheryl, weird name, <laughs> Lee Taylor Young, is the concubine to Mr. Simonson. Mr. Simonson, after he sends Cheryl away to go buy meat, someone breaks into Simonson's home and kills him but he doesn't just kill him Simonson like lets him kill him yeah which is which is interesting and then so detective Robert Thorne is on the case I like when he enters the home he just starts kind of taking stuff which which kind of just shows the divide between the rich and poor I think that even this um detective guy like he you see him just like going right up next to the air conditioning and all this stuff. And he steals a bar of soap and, and just some really neat, some good, like, world-building details here. Him and his world are absolutely filthy. Filthy, filthy. Sure. Compared to the lavish yes. lifestyle that these rich people yeah. are leading. Right? Like, he's, like, he's like <laughs> stealing everything. He takes, uh, what, a... Uh, takes a towel. A decanter of uh Whiskey of or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's, he's got questions. He's suspecting... This isn't just a burglary gone wrong. He's suspecting assassination, especially once he learns who Simonson is. Because at first, you know, he, he's asking Cheryl these questions. He's asking the bodyguard Fielding, which is Chuck Connors, all these questions. They, for whatever reason, don't really know what Simonson does. Like, he's obviously rich, but they don't really know, like, what his thing is. And this is just kind of weird, but whatever. You know, he, he suspects Fielding. He suspects mm-hmm. Fielding did it because he's chuck connors and he saw tourist trap probably you know he's a, he's a, <laughs> a bad guy but also like he thinks okay maybe Cheryl's having an affair maybe with fielding like whatever he doesn't really know but so he's got his lieutenant i don't remember the the lieutenant the actor's name but he's played by the actor who played tom robinson in to kill a mockingbird the black man accused of rape who atticus finch defends i recognize him um, because he has very, very, very large nostrils. <laughs> hey, listen, if you watch To Kill a Mockingbird, his nostrils are flaring all over when, when he's on the stand, man. It's, it's, you can't not notice it. Uh, Simonson. Supposed to look like he was killed when he caught some punk burglarizing his apartment. Well, what do you say? It was an assassination. 
Thorne has been on like the riot squad and he's trying to like solve this murder now. This is again, obviously New York City, 40 million people. There's murders all the time and most of them go unsolved. But this one in particular is kind of interesting because you can imagine, okay, rich guy, this could be politically important to figure things out. And then eventually though, and this is way later, but his lieutenant tells him to drop it. And at that point, Thorne doesn't want to because he he doesn't want to get put back on riot squad because there's riots every day. Yeah. So Saul is what what Saul's a retired professor who I guess used to do police work too. They call he's like an analyst, they call him a book, but uh, Thorne basically has him help, but he gives him these books and they were what what's it, the Soylent Company like oceanographic guide or something. Yeah, Soylent Company Oceanographic Survey. Yeah, and he's like, here, study these and tell me what you learn. And so over time, they eventually find out that Simonson was on the Soylent Company's board of directors. Then Robert Thorne strikes up a relationship with this concubine, Cheryl, that literally comes out of nowhere. Really kind of weird stuff. Connery could have made this feel more believable because Connery uses sexuality a lot more than Charlton Heston, let's be honest. This is middle-aged Charlton Heston, too. So yeah. he, he goes over to the house. Cause, so first of all, the, we do learn a little bit about how the concubines work. They're basically tied to the house and or the condo or whatever. And then now that Simonson's dead, the next tenant is going to come in. And if he wants Cheryl to work for him, he will hire her. Otherwise, who knows what happens to her after that. So yeah, Thorne goes to the condo. Cheryl is having her little hippie party of her friends, who I guess are all like other concubines, right? They're just kind of all hanging out, having a gay old time. Then Thorne comes in, <laughs> and he wants to question Cheryl again. And he's talking to her, and they go into the bedroom, and then he just starts taking off his clothes. Like, what the, what the fuck is going on here? Well, first off, the whole scene itself is kind of weird, because he just walks in, and he starts taking drinks out of women's hands and taking their smokes away and stuff Well, because like he's that. poor, and they, I mean, yeah, that I understand. Poor, but like, he's just gross. They do go into the bedroom, and as soon as they enter, he says, get in the bed. Yeah. And then, and then at first, I'm thinking, like, oh, why does he want her to do that? And then a couple minutes of conversation, now he's taken off his clothes, and she's fully naked in the bed. He's a hard like, character Ugh. to root for. He's a hard protagonist to root for. I don't know what Yeah, I, mean. I agree. But also, like, Cheryl's performance, Lee Taylor Young, she, she seems so sad all the time. Like, I, it just seems wrong to be making moves on her. And then on yeah. top of that, he has no, he essentially has no game. He just, they just have sex. He doesn't, he doesn't like hit on her and and get her interested. No, it just kind of happens. It comes out of nowhere. And at a certain point it becomes, if not love, there's something mutual and it's never really established when that happens. And it's just weird. It also hurts. First of all, I I looked this up, Lee Taylor Young. She's in her thirties in this movie, which actually surprised me because she looks even younger. I I would, she says she's 21. The the character says she's 21, but then- Um, that's when she's speaking to the new tenant, and the tenant's like, oh, well, someone else told me you're 24. And then she's like, well, we're both lying. The actress is in like, her like early 30s. Charlton Heston is, is like late 40s. Or so early 30s, late 40s. Yeah. It, it actually, it, the age difference looks worse on film than it actually is with the actors. Compare Roger Moore and, and any of the women in the Bond movies when he was older in like his last yeah. couple movies it's way worse however yeah you're right it it does it looks tanya weird roberts and, and all that feels yeah. weird. tanya roberts also in tourist trap of course with chuck connors no it, it it doesn't look right 
And then on top of it too, and, and I think this is this could be this could be a thematic thing. I don't think it, you know, it's debatable whether or not it really is. But you mentioned the dirtiness of of Thorn and stuff, and it's like, meanwhile, mm-hmm. Cheryl isn't rich, but she lives in a rich dude's home, and so she's always clean and beautiful and made up and stuff. And meanwhile, you get this like neanderthal looking guy sweaty yeah yeah it's just like okay that's kind of interesting and it's one of the reasons why the second time they have sex is in the shower i guess probably because he needs to (laughs) clean up so after doing some digging around he he finds more reason to suspect fielding because he goes over to to fielding's place who he lives with the fielding lives with the black woman and the black woman is enjoying strawberries she tries to hide the spoon Strawberry jam, I believe. Strawberry, well, whatever. Um, but <laughs> he very cleverly snatches the spoon, brings it back, gives it to Saul. Saul, of course, is old enough to remember when food was readily available. Saul tastes tastes it, and he's like, oh, strawberries. And he says something like, these cost like $5,000 or something. Okay, what's this bodyguard doing with $5,000 worth of strawberries, right? You know? So yeah. he has he has reason to think that maybe something happened, you know, that, that, that the bodyguard was in on this. But when the lieutenant wants this case dropped, Thorne gets put on riot duty. This is probably, other than the ending, probably the most famous scene of the movie in when the big, the big riot scene. Everybody's lined up to get their Soylent. Clean. Yeah, is it is it Soylent Day? I, I suppose. Yeah, it is. yeah, yeah. Because well, because you can see it on like a stop on a shop window, and instead of saying Tuesday is Soylent Day, it says today is Soylent Day. Soylent Green Day. Soylent Green Day. Sorry, because yeah, they so- have other forms of Soylent. There's Soylent Red, which is not nearly soylent as popular. Yellow too, right? Okay, so a riot breaks out. We we got to establish first of all all these like daytime scenes outside. They all have like a slightly green filter with them. Which is kind of neat. It looks almost like Ghostbusters. You know when they would add kind of like a no. like a ghosty <laughs> kind of green gross filter on it. You know when they're no, like I looking don't. at a ghost or something. No, <laughs> I, I I I don't know what you're talking about. But yeah, it, it's it's great because it's there's green like the silent green. You know it's Im- maybe not thematically important, but you know it ties to the title. It keeps green on your mind right the entire time. Yeah, and then also there's it just looks everything looks polluted. Like it just looks disgusting. Yeah. It's it's neat. It's like um, hell. The, the they were doing this in the twenty first century. The Saw movies all have like these weird green filters on everything, and it's like like if I had to think of one color that I'd associate with like the Saw movies, it's green. It's just because everything looks kind of like gross, and and they just yeah. So I don't know. It it works pretty well here. They only do it in the day. They don't really do it in the night time, or at least not that I noticed. You just notice it more in the day. But this scene, this riot scene. What would you, this is like construction equipment, what would you call these things? I would call them modified garbage trucks. It's like a garbage truck or something, or like a dump truck. Okay, but they've got the giant mechanized shovel is the important part. I don't care about them being garbage trucks, sure, whatever. But but it's got like a big scoop on the front. And these are used for riot control. They, at one point, lift up a couple dozen people and just like, you know, it's neat. But then there is a guy in the crowd who is, in fact, the assassin that killed Simonson, and he is going after Thorne. Thorne, at this point, has noticed or suspected that he's being followed, but he, he notices this guy. This guy attacks Thorne, shoots him in, like, the ankle or, like, the lower leg somewhere, and then this, there's a bit of a fight that breaks out. He gets shoved to the ground, the assassin, 
And then he gets crushed by this mechanized shovel scoop thing, which is amazing. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's a very, it's very a... fun scene. Also impressive just with the amount of, I mean, the, the sheer amount of extras in, in the scenes like this and in the outdoor daytime scenes is just neat. It's, it's I really appreciate that. They do chaos really well in the movie and just like big scenes of chaos, whether you're like in a church full of like yes bums or like in the apartment building with a bunch of people sleeping on the stairs, which it just looks chaotic. Then the whole um, riot, it's just like a huge scene of movement and people and it's hard to kind of focus on one thing and right. you, you feel chaotic just watching it. And you you know? feel homeless watching it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, singing a leather lazy boy watching this movie, I've, I felt really homeless. No, but okay, so we got to talk about the church <laughs> because at one point, Cheryl describes what Simonson was like in like the last couple of weeks. And and she says that like, oh, he stopped touching her. He seemed distant. And she recalls going to church with him at one point. And it's, a, it's important. We, we see this when he goes to the church. The church is basically no longer a place for rich people. The church, I don't even know if they have services anymore. It's just the churches yeah. are basically just homeless shelters and they're just yeah. overcrowded. And so it, it, it seems significant that this rich guy, Simonson, goes to a church, right? Thorne speaks to the priest that he had spoken to. And since it was since he had spoken to him in confession, the priest can't tell him anything that he said, obviously, even with him being dead. But at the same time, he seems shaken up by something. This this, yeah. this priest really seems bothered by something. I do like how, how we established this. Like, the first couple times that a character learns about what si- what Simonson had learned or what or what Simonson was involved in, we as the audience don't learn what it is, but we see how much it really bothers the people that do learn, which I think is really interesting. It's yeah. good storytelling because then we have Saul going to his book club or whatever, this like underground kind of reminded me of like fahrenheit 451 or or it's almost like he meets with these people that like discuss books but it's almost like it's an underground thing and not that books are illegal or whatever but like books are just uncommon so like the only people that care about books are these old people because you see in his in his book club which is just what i'm going to call it i guess it's just with like 85 year old women basically and and and, uh, edward (laughs) g robinson who i don't know how old he is but he looks like he'd be in his 80s (laughs) <laughs> why are you laughing Does i don't he know not? It's just, it's, i don't i don't think he is in the movie i bet he's in his 60s dude was in little caesar in 1930 or 31 or something holy shit you know when he was born when 1893 yeah fuck off he's in his yeah, 80s. So, so he was 79 he was 79 yeah, when okay. he died <laughs> he's in his 80s basically um he, he looks a bit like Orson Welles, by the way. Wine commercial Orson Welles. He, <laughs> he's got that look to him. He does, yeah. Just less bloated. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. So studying the books, and these books, of course, are the Soylent Oceanographic Survey, but they, they figure that Simonson had learned something he shouldn't have learned and that's why he was killed but again we don't really establish what it is that he learned but again this really really bothers Saul 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 excuse me because it's short for Solomon Simonson board of directors of the Soylent Corporation murdered because he discovered the secret of Soylent Green Detective Thorne 
He's got to find out what Simonson knew. So then, having learned this, whatever information this gentleman has learned, Saul then goes to an assisted suicide center, which is actually mentioned a few times earlier in the movie. I think they, they call it, like, going home or something. And he's he, I think he says, like, you know, oh, I'm so old. Like, you know, I could, you know, I could go home any day now or something. And it, yeah. and it's, it's, it's an assisted suicide thing. And Thorne really doesn't want him to do this because he likes them. They're friends. At this point, Saul thinks it's time. And he leaves a note for Thorne. Thorne reads the note sometime after the after the riot because he's running around this because when he reads the note and heads to the institute this um assisted suicide thing he's running with a limp because he was shot at a certain point in the movie he just kind of stops limping which you know (laughs) whatever yeah i'll give it to him (laughs) he gets there he's too late to stop it but he's at least taken to the observation room where he can see what Saul sees and what they do here with the assisted suicide it's kind of interesting I guess they like poison him or something but they try and make it as peaceful as possible they ask him when he enters you know what's his favorite color and what's his favorite genre of music what's his favorite type of music he goes with orange and classical yeah but he specifically says light classical he doesn't want any of that hardcore classical stuff coming on you know (laughs) but Jim, I gotta ask you: If you go to an assisted suicide thing, what color and what music? Ooh, color! It'd be between green and yellow. I might pick yellow. And uh, Mr. Mr. JC, the man upstairs, Johnny Cash. Okay. How about you? Well, Johnny Cash might be downstairs. We don't know. But um, no, for me, <laughs> tempted to say maroon. That's and a nice I'm color. going electric blues. I mean that Chicago okay. blues kind of sound. I you know. I don't, well, I, I mean, I love rock music, but I don't want to tell them rock music and then they play Queen. And it's like, oh, that's <laughs> the last thing I have to listen to? It sucks. <laughs> you know, I don't want Queen or Rush coming on, so I feel like blues is a safe option for me. Now, do, uh, it's a shame you don't get to pick the pictures that you're looking at. You know what Oh, I mean? yeah, that's like, another thing that I, I, w- I w- I'd have no interest in my last sites being. First of all, these sites are pretty, but I, I'm not letting my last sights be anything that were in the United States. I, I'm not going out on that note. Uh, because a lot of the, I mean, it's it's beautiful landscapes, and we see, like, horses running around these hills. I get the impression some of them are up in, you know, Alaska, the Pacific Northwest somewhere, British Columbia maybe, I don't know. But, but it's just on this big screen, and he's watching it, and eventually with Thorne there, he's communicating with him because they have these little voice channels or whatever. And... He's asking him, you know, Thorne, can you see this? And he's like, yes. And he and he's remarking at how beautiful everything is. And Edward G. Robinson, this is the last movie, give or take. What a way to go out. And I and I'm, I don't mean that as a joke. Like this is a first of all, we see him die in the, in this yeah, movie, which yeah. is a little kind of weird because he did die. It, this is a powerful scene, and it's so well acted by Robinson. He really not not only earlier what I was saying about him being. Sh- shaken up by the news or you know what he learns but that he knows he's dying but he's also like overwhelmed with the beauty of it all but then also how he needs to get one last bit of information to thorn i think it's a really great Mm -hmm. performance it really is 
And then it's also, again, going back to the clever storytelling of how characters learn stuff and we see how it affects them, but we don't learn it yet. We kind of get more of that where he's telling Thorn, but the voice is kind of cutting in and out. So we don't hear everything. And then they eventually... Yeah. We, we don't hear anything at first, but then but then he knows whatever he's trying to communicate is important. So they give him like the little headphones or whatever to put in his ear. And so then only he hears it. So we don't hear it. But he does say something like you need to you need to prove it. You need to get to the whatever some commission or something. And you need to prove this thing, this this thing that Simonson learned that got him killed and this thing that. Saul learned and now wanted to die now that he knows it. This scene is also fantastic because the whole movie is kind of depressing. Like everything in it is depressing. Yes. And here you have a man taking assisted suicide as a way out, not only because of what he learned shook him up so much, but it's so depressing to hear the truth of of whatever he heard. Yeah. But also the whole world has just beat him down. He can't, you know, he can't go eat strawberries you know that's what i was going to say is that that kind of reinforces that what he learned as being as powerful as it is because the whole world being as depressing as it is wasn't enough to make him want to die this is yeah that's powerful yeah. that is something yeah because because this is a guy again going back to like he's one of the few characters in the movie who seems to be old enough to remember when life was different he remembers strawberries he's overwhelmed when Charlton Heston gives him the whiskey or the bourbon or whatever. Well, he also, he, he's even overwhelmed when he's eating plain lettuce, <laughs> you know, and Charlton Heston is like, I don't understand what's so Oh, yeah, awesome and then the soap, the, he, he's never seen a bar of soap as big as that he brought home, and it's just a normal bar of soap, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great performance from Edward G. Robinson. This is really, you know, it's not, when you think of great Edward G. Robinson movies, this isn't one that you put on his Mount Rushmore, right? Because this is an accomplished actor. Little Caesar, probably a signature role, one of the classic gangster pictures of the 30s. You know, it's when it was him and and James Cagney doing their thing. And then also, he's not the lead role, but Double Indemnity, one of the greatest movies of all time. Edward G. Robinson has a very big role in that, and he's plays a really fun character in that movie. Double Indemnity, can't recommend it enough. One of the great film noirs of all time. Yeah, it came out in 44, I yes. think, right? great movie billy wilder i think directed it um fred mcmurray's in it and barbara stanwyck this movie it's it's no double indemnity don't get me wrong <laughs> there is a noirish feel though i mean it's kind of like a you know neo-noir is is the term that gets thrown around in like any modern-ish movie that has the has the kind of the noir elements but yeah. also i think it was because the first time i heard of neo-noir it was blade runner so mm. i've always associated neo-noir with science fiction even though it's not yeah. i think you could say john wick is a neo-noir there's no science fiction in that but like this is it's not i mean i'm not the biggest blade runner fan but even i'll say blade runner is a better movie than this but it's it's cut from the same block of granite that blade runner is is cut from you know there's a little bit of like a boring ass detective doing some <laughs> you know uncovering this great mystery and this conspiracy kind of thing like there's I yeah. guess there's no real conspiracy in blade runner is there i don't remember uh yeah w w there's like the, an uh, evil corporation uh, in blade runner that's kind of what's going on here yeah and the conspiracy is about whether or not 
the robot people can actually be alive or not, right? Like, well, yeah, and then the conspiracy is about Ridley Ridley Scott's a crazy person and and keeps and adding unicorns to the everything movie. he does and says about that movie after it's come out has made the movie worse. That's the real conspiracy. But he has he has retconned more stuff than J.K. Rowling has with Harry Potter. All right, or George Lucas, or um... yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so with Saul now dead, they put him in. They cover him up. They drag him out, and Thorne starts following the body. And the, the bodies at this clinic, at this assisted suicide clinic, are stuffed into, like, a dump truck. And mm-hmm. Thorne jumps onto that dump truck and follows it down to, like, some plant where the bodies are dumped in onto, like, a conveyor belt and eventually taken into, like, a little, like, a pool of water. So Thorne starts investigating around. He's spotted by a couple of workers who... He throws off of um, these, like, balcony areas. Uh, the first guy just kind of falls to his death. Second guy, awesome stunt, just throws him off, and he, like, hits the conveyor belt hard and just kind of bounces off of it. That's an incredible stunt. I love that. It, it's am- And it's it's kind of, br- like, I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, my God. It's that painful way. to watch. <laughs> yeah. It's it awesome. It really is. <laughs> he does some digging around, and he, he finds that... You know something's going on with this, with this, um, with the soylent green, right? Because the soylent green, it's coming out in like these squares, these green squares, and they're coming out of this conveyor belt that seems to be connected with the pool where the bodies are being dumped. Yeah. So Thorne leaves, and he goes back to he goes back to his home, but then he sees sketchy-looking men waiting outside his home. So instead, he calls Cheryl. First tells, and Cheryl mentions that, oh, I've been, the the new tenant is interested in keeping me, and, and but she's like, I but I would rather live with you, because I'm in love with you, and I'm like, when did this happen? <laughs> but Thorne is like, no, 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 go with her, because he's thinking, you know, these people are going to kill me or something, like, no, 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 that, that's good, that's great, I'll never see you again, whatever, I'm... 30 years older than you anyways. I'm going to die soon. <laughs> then he tries to call his lieutenant. And as he calls his lieutenant, that's when the men notice him and start chasing him. There's a shootout that breaks out. He kills a few people. And then he gets shot in the back when he's running by a cemetery right outside of the church. And he gets shot by none other than Fielding, Chuck Connors, who is not wielding a rifle. Instead, just a pistol here. The little little change of pace for the rifleman himself. <laughs> The pistol man. And then he wanders, Thorne gets into the church. And again, as we said earlier, the church just covered in homeless people, right? So he's trying to hide there. And then Fielding gets in and he's he's following the blood. He's also looking around. None of the homeless people are like waking up from the gunshot noises outside, which you could say it's a mistake or you could say that's just how freaking violent the city is that you're kind of used to it. I, I choose to believe the latter. Then a woman gets up, notices Fielding going around with a gun, and she tries to, like, get away because she's scared. But then she, like, trips over something, makes a noise. Fielding turns and shoots her, thinking it's Thorn. So Fielding has just killed an innocent homeless woman. And then he finds Thorn, and they fight. And eventually... And then again, this, this is a neat fight, too, just because the amount of homeless people there where they're just, like... You know, all these all these bunk beds and stuff, and just like everything, it's it, it's messy. It's what you were saying earlier is chaos. Thorne eventually finds a knife and stabs Fielding 
in the stomach, killing him, but he has already been... Or was he shot again in the church? I don't remember if he's... Well, he was shot outside. Is he shot yeah, again? Yeah, he wasn't shot... No, he got shot at when he, like, dove on, like, a couch or something and flipped it over. Right. So, the police turn up, including the lieutenant, who we, um... I guess this church is right next to the 14th precinct or something like that, but the lieutenant shows up, and they're getting to Thorn. Thorn's like, oh, did I, did I, get, did I get him? You know, the other guy fielding. And they're like, oh, yeah, you got him all right. And they start to, like, cart him away, but then he's like, no, 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 wait, you got to tell everyone. Like, he's, apparently what everyone learned was that the sea levels are too low, that there is no longer plankton enough to make Soylent Green, and what he has learned at the, you know, at the at the incinerator plant, whatever, the sanitation, he's learned that Soylent Green is made from dead people. So that's, of course, the famous line where he's just being carted off. He's screaming, Soylent Green is people. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them, Soylent Green is people! We gotta stop them, no more! And that's <laughs> more or less how the movie ends. And I think it kind of ends ambiguously, too, because, okay, does, he's yeah. he's gotten this news out to the lieutenant, but the lieutenant earlier told him to drop the case, so is the lieutenant being paid off by the soil company? You don't really know if this message is going to get out beyond where it's getting out here and of course you know thorn might be dying he's been shot in the back you know it's i think it's very ambiguous as to whether or not the problem is solved or will be solved i should say yeah well i mean er earlier in the movie the lieutenant was sitting with somebody from the soylent company right who was paying him to drop the case and we also learned that the guy running for is it governor or something yeah there's some political stuff going on yeah is also part of is also probably part of the soylent company because he was, he ran a company with the dead man. What was his name again? Simonson. And you're right. At the end of the movie, it's also ambiguous whether uh, Charlton Heston lives or dies because the camera zooms in on his hand and then it cuts to the same flowers that you saw in like the assisted suicide. And I think thing that I think that goes, yeah, credits. that that implies that they force him into assisted suicide potentially because we do get the flowers and the nice calming classical music as the credits roll. Yes, yeah. potentially that he's gone the way of Edward G. Robinson, both in real life and in this movie. So, Jim, what did you think of Soylent Green? I'm not going to say it's like a fantastic movie. I like it a lot, but it's definitely a movie I think everybody should see at least once. The way they depict the disgusting conditions of humanity and like society and the way they juxtapose it with the lives of the ultra rich is yeah. really... It just makes you think a lot, even when you're watching the movie, about like all the political stuff that's going on now. And again, not to get too political with this, but it's set in the year 2022, and obviously there are some things that are absolutely crazy and ridiculous in the movie. But a lot of it isn't like that far off. Yeah, Charles off, Neston today, uses a payphone. Yeah. I mean, we didn't point that out. He calls <laughs> Cheryl on a payphone. Yeah, or like all the cars that you see that are like burned out or broken down are all from like the 60s and 70s. I, well, <laughs> you know I was mean? going to say, you don't freaking see cars. Do you ever see a car move? No, you don't. You only see cars in like this weird, like at the beginning of it. Yeah, because he uh, gets in, the, he gets in the, the criminal gets in a car to get hired by, and he gives him like a crowbar, which is what he kills Simonson with. But they get in a car, the car's not moving. And yeah, then, exactly. And yeah. then we see the, um, obviously the mechanized dump trucks. Like we, we don't see civilian vehicles. Like we know, um, no. every car we see is like owned by a business or something. You know, we don't, we don't see any individually owned cars. 
Yeah, it's just a really neat movie that makes you think about your own society that you're living in. You know, and I think that's why people have kind of clung on to this movie for for such a long time. And also, like, the twist in it is pretty good as well. Yeah, and then obviously the twist... So, Charlton Heston, of course, in a couple of classic science fiction movies with twist endings. This one, the movie itself isn't as well known as Planet of the Apes, but every single person who knows about the movie knows the twist because that's the fam- the famous line is Soylent Green exactly. is people that was the first thing I knew about this movie oh yeah 100% I had never heard well. it, I had never heard of this movie and I was watching I don't know what network this aired on but the AFI's 100 years 100 movie quotes and that that line was one of the 100 greatest movie quotes and I had never heard of Soylent Green and so it's like okay <laughs> the only thing I know about Soylent Green is Charlton Heston's in it and Soylent Green and is people Soylent Green that's is it. people yeah <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's a great movie, though. But you do kind of wish you could watch it for the first time not knowing that. Oh, for sure, 100%. Because I do think the movie, you know, there's there's clues. First thing we actually see in the movie proper is the Soylent Company on TV talking about, so like, okay, so, so we know Soylent, there's something going on, there's something fishy. I, there's clues planted throughout, the, not necessarily that you could figure it out until the very end, but, you know, it, it's certainly enough to keep you invested in the mystery. How did you like the movie, Patrick? This movie's good. It's not... I don't think it's great. It's it's aged really well in some ways, and it's aged kind of poorly in others. I'm not crazy about the Charlton Heston performance. Yeah, but but also because he's pretty off-putting as a character in the well, movie Well, yeah, well. yeah. He's, he's not an easy character to root for, but even the performance is just, you know, it's not the best. And then, you know, next week, I already recorded this episode, but I talk about Planet of the Apes. With my friend Sean, who was featured on our Godzilla Raids Again Killing American Style episode. And we talked at length about Charlton Heston as an actor. And he and I kind of had differing opinions. Charlton Heston can be very good. I think he's outstanding in the Ten Commandments. I don't think he's that great in Ben-Hur. And I'm Mm going to put this in kind of the Ben-Hur category where it's like, in 1973, this might have been considered a good performance, but it's it's just, I don't know, it hasn't aged well. I think the Edward G. Robinson performance is legitimately good. He's the most compelling actor in the movie. I kind of wish he had more screen time. No, I, I think the movie's aged pretty well in some of its message. Obviously, you know, it's, New York City is not a city of 40 million people, but... You know, that kind of environmentalist, like the polluted stuff going on, like, I'm not going to say we literally see that now, but obviously climate change is a big concern for a lot of people. And then the divide of the rich and poor is obviously relevant. And I mean, it's classic science fiction where it's, it's, it's social commentary. It's not satire. If this were satire, this would be Jonathan Swift because it has, (laughs) it has something in common with a modest proposal, obviously, but (laughs) it does. Yeah. Now, Hey, I got a question for you though. What's that? If you had to live in this dystopian world or the dystopian world of Blade Runner, which one would you choose? Blade Runner? I mean, well, well, I guess it's difficult to give a proper answer because we only see cities in in, in the same one city in each movie, right? But I'll say Blade Runner doesn't seem to be as miserable, does it? Like... There's lots of colors and lights and And if it's you Blade Runner do. 2049, you can have a virtual Ana de Armas girlfriend. Like, that's fun. Yeah, I'm okay with that. That's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Blade Runner is a much more pleasant future to live in than this. This is disgusting. 
Yeah, it just made me sad actually watching this movie. I, just, I was, I was just depressed. I guess. But that's watching the most of this. That's movie. what the movie's going for, though, too. Obviously, and and so I do yeah. think that's something that works well. I do like a lot of the things that they don't really go into detail on. You kind of just pick up on like how the church is. Rich people don't have anything to do with the church anymore, and it's because the church is just occupied by these homeless people and stuff. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. The concubine thing i don't know really the kind of the modern day i guess is is is, is, is simonson a sugar daddy is that is that what he is he kind of you know what that's a good question but i, I will say one thing that's kind of interesting about this movie obviously we don't see a lot of simonson Cheryl seems to have genuine affection for him whether or not it's in like a sexual romantic sense she seems to like him and be genuinely upset when he's killed and and i mean all that we see him do for her is he gets her a little video game like an arcade video game kind of thing <laughs> yeah but and and then it's like how much is that really with simonson how much of that is really just simonson enables her to live a life that she wouldn't be able to live i don't know you know yeah. it's it's you know it's, it doesn't really matter but it's just kind of kind of interesting it, it's definitely a slow movie and as awesome as the payoff is with the mystery i don't know it's kind of a simple movie too you know what i mean like there's not i i feel like we could have done some more stuff in the middle to kind of there's no red herrings or anything you know it's just kind of the movie proceeds pretty straightforward the thing that interests me the most about the movie is the world that they're living in it's not necessarily sure the plot yeah, you know what I mean, that's I I understand perfectly well. Yeah, and I, and I think that's fair too. But the, but I also think as for the the world, I'm gonna bring up was it Land of the Dead, the uh, 2005 Romero zombie oh, movie. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. That's very much about the divide between the rich and poor. This pulls that stuff off way better than that does. Like of I, I've seen I've seen movies try and do something like this world that just doesn't work as well as it does here you know some of that's the visuals just again the green filter just everything looks disgusting and then a lot of that's just the you know the i don't know just the extras and everything it's it's good you could say this either ages it poorly or ages it well but i'm going to comment on kind of the lack of technology in most most movies when you're making a future movie you mentioned blade runner i mentioned blade runner Back to the Future Part 2 is kind of the movie that I always think of. And then, like, Star Trek is like, okay, a lot of those movies, they'll have, like, technology things, and those things will come to be. Or or they maybe they won't, but they're kind of interesting. Yeah. Back to the Future Part 2, you got the hoverboard. You got... That's the only one I can think of right now. Oh, you get the mini, get the mini pizza that they, the the microwave that's just hydrates because there's oh you sure can hydrate a pizza. You know there's there's some stuff like that. They get the video screens, the talking screens. They Back to the Future Part Two has Zoom basically. Yeah. Yes, there's some other stuff, and then Blade Runner, flying cars. I guess Back to the Future Part Two is flying cars too. Blade Runner twenty forty nine virtual girlfriend thing. Yeah, hologram well, and, stuff. Like and of all... course, I'm forgetting Blade Runner robots. That's kind of the big one. Uh, yeah. Androids or whatever. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting the important stuff. And then this movie, no real technological advancements. The, notice he, he uses, it is a payphone, but it's also a cordless payphone. So that's that's pretty spicy for 1973. That's something. Yeah. That's kind of it, though. But I do think that, that makes it 
that makes it not age poorly in the sense that there's nothing you know you see in this 2022 that hasn't come to exist yet because that's like back to future part two flying cars 2015 yeah. came and went we didn't have those and a lot of people are like oh that's kind of disappointing like whatever you know it's it's kind of funny to look back like oh they thought we would have flying cars 30 years in the future i also think back to the future part two it i mean it's science fiction but it's not isaac asimov or um philip k dick kind of science fiction like there's not mm-hmm. as much thought put into it as like the world of blade runner i don't think but but it is kind of like, oh, you see a payphone. Like, we don't even have those, and those have been gone for a long time. It's like, so I don't know. They don't overshoot their boundaries in terms of, you know, they don't get too aggressive with the scientific predictions. It remains predictions. very grounded. It and remains very grounded. Also, with the lack of technological advan- advancements, too, I think could point to the world of the movie is that this world is just horribly overcomplicated and, or overly over horribly overpopulated and just progress came to a halt i think that could be the world that that exists in this movie you know yeah yeah so i i think it works you know i mean they don't even use cars anymore we were talking about that so i just think that's kind of worth noting is kind of if you're a science fiction fan there's some it's interesting to see that this isn't you know a lot of movies that handle the future handle it in a very different way Jim, which of these two movies do you prefer? You know what? I will go with Thunderball. Just because I enjoyed watching Thunderball more. It was less depressing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, how about you? I'm going Thunderball. Definitely less depressing. Also, the performance. Uh, we kind of joked about this earlier, but the oozing sexuality of Connery versus the kind of creepy sexuality of Charlton Heston. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I enjoy that more. I think... Thunderball has its scenes that kind of slow the movie down, but Soylent Green, for the most part, is just a slow movie from start to end, so I just think Thunderball's more entertaining, more exciting. Yeah, I agree with that. So, how do you think this works as a drive-in double feature? I like it as a double feature, because I like how you have this flashy movie about a sexy super spy that's like a a globetrotting adventure with all these beautiful women and he's living like a life of luxury as a spy you know hanging out in the bahamas staying at fancy hotels stuff like that and then you have this movie which is just like (laughs) depressing all of humanity's depressed nobody's eating any actual food it's all soy food and you can't buy (laughs) groceries you can't even find booze everybody's dirty soap. and sweaty yeah, yeah exactly so you can't i assume everybody's also smelly you know it's just like such <laughs> it's just such a neat comparison between those two movies and society and life between these two movies and i really like that from this double feature that we have here well i'm gonna say it's not a great double feature and i think i'm focusing on the pacing or the, the slowness of thunderball has that quote-unquote exciting action scene that goes on for four hours of the underwater (laughs) harpoon fighting and it just like it sucks the air out of the movie and then also like the goofy ship steering scene and you know we kind of end on a relatively low note we we technically end on a high note when they when they with the plane airlifting them out of there that's pretty awesome but yeah like overall the movie is um definitely exciting for the most part but it has those like moments that really drag and that, that overall that keeps me from 
putting Thunderball in the upper echelon of Bond movies. Then I think like Soylent Green, it's a different type of movie, don't get me wrong. But Soylent Green is kind of all of that. It does drag. It's it's a fine movie. It's a well-written movie. It's a well-imagined world. But it's not that entertaining. And then it's also kind of visually ugly, intentionally so. <laughs> intentionally visually ugly yeah, with the right. green filters. Yeah. But even the costumes and stuff. Charles and Eston's just like, everyone's wearing like khakis. And it's just kind of yeah. like, I don't know. And then you but get See, the... that's what I love about it, though. That's what I love about putting these two movies together that's that's what i love about it as as like a as a science fiction movie because that's the world that they created but i just and then also thinking going back to the sex angle thunderball is an incredibly sexy movie and then there's like more sex in soylent green and it's like incredibly unsexy i don't know. <laughs> like i don't know how to describe it otherwise no you're right though you're right but again like that's what i that's why I like these movies are so different, but like even like in my head, I was like, oh, all the dragging in Thunderball kind of complements the dragging pace of Soylent Green. Right. I, I think I'll, I'll take movies that are very different, you know, that, that might complement each other in their differences. If it's an entertaining sit through, I think that for four hours, this is not the most exciting you know, not quite. It's not quite a full. It might be a Thunderball's over yeah. two hours, I think, and then Thunderball's two hours and ten minutes. Yeah, so in green is like an hour fifty-five, I hour, think, something like that. Hour thirty. Okay, never mind. It felt longer, <laughs> but yeah, I see. I, I I'll take a, a three hours and forty minutes of kind of different movies if they're at least like exciting and and just for two movies, this is not the most entertaining. And I get that. And like for somebody like like me where i love james bond and that captivates me the 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 i mean like the plot's kind of silly but everything in thunderball was fun for me to watch even if it was dragging a bit and then i also love sci-fi and i really liked that whole social or societal aspect of this movie and that's what kept me engaged in soil and green was just living in that world for the duration of that movie but yeah i can understand why you don't think it's a good double feature and why a lot of people wouldn't but i'm sticking to my guns pal all right well i already mentioned next week we're doing planet of the apes because i'm joined by my friend sean but in addition to planet of the apes we cover bill rubain's the giant spider invasion so a double feature of apes and spiders that will be next week here on this podcast so be sure to tune in be sure to check us out on Twitter at Drive-In Podcast, no underscores, hyphens, or spaces. Check out patreon.com slash revenge of the drive-in for exclusive commentary tracks from Jim and myself, including several James Bond films that we've done, and as well as you'll have access to extended cuts of episodes to hear some jokes and things that were left out, and you will also be able to listen to the episodes early before they are released to the general public, so sure to check that out if that sounds interesting to you jim thanks for joining me thanks for having me as always all right do you have anything to say to close it out i can't think of anything oh um no (laughs) but believe this in because i think that's funny all right peace see you later